0: Hey Amen. Well, on Sunday mornings, we are doing a study through the book of 1 John, verse by verse. Now, here's the deal. Normally, I would tell you guys, grab a Bible and open it. Um, you can if you want to, but I'm just going to be really honest. You're not going to need it this morning. Uh, we're going to do something just a little bit different, and, and uh, in a sense, kind of trying to look at the whole of, the, of where we're going and the whole of the book, and so we're be coming at it in a few different ways. Now, I just want to be honest. It's a different Sunday. Even the way we're approaching this the way we're going to handle this and i just want to just say it it's different and you might like it you might be like hey that was a lot of fun you might hate it. And some of you are going to hate it. Uh, and I just want to tell you, hey, this is just not the way we normally do things. So, you know, if you're visiting or if just if, you know, don't, don't let today define it for you. Like, okay, come back. And next week, we're going to begin in verse one, chapter one, and begin our journey through the book of 1 John. But this morning, we wanted to kind of take an overview, kind of talk about what we're looking at, why we're even here, and, and what's going to come out of that for a little bit. So that's where we're going. But before we even and go there let's take a moment and pray we always do this and certainly it's always needed but today especially we really want God to meet you we really want in the midst of this that not only is it be information but it would be a time that through the things we talk about this morning that the Holy Spirit would show you something so that when you leave you would go that's what he was showing me so I'm going to ask him for that would you ask the same as we just take a moment and pry. Father, we think about just approaching just this study of 1 John and today, kind of taking an overview and thinking about it in a different way. God, I confess to you what you know, nervous about it, nervous that it's just it's a different way of doing things for us, and just in that difference, knowing that it's not necessarily going to always meet the way we're used to. And so, Lord, just in your favor, would you meet us? Would you help us? Would you help us to understand the things that are before us, see the things that we're going to talk about a little bit, but in the midst of it, God, in your favor, would you make this morning impacting? Would you take your truth and and the things that are going to be spoken, Lord, would you take something and cause every one of us to hear from you? Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would speak today so that not one of us miss that opportunity of hearing from you. We ask for that together, and together we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So 1 John, that's the the book that we've started. We actually began a couple weeks ago with some character studies on John, just to kind of meet the man that wrote this. And so now we're at the very kind of cusp of getting ready to launch into this book. And so let's just pause and ask the question, why? What what, What is the book of 1 John about? What is it that we should anticipate or expect as we dive in this book? Where should we kind of position our hearts to be adhering from the things that God is going to have? That's kind of the question that we want to ask this morning. But in asking it, I just want to own up to you right now, that's a little bit of a difficult thing because 1 John is a very different book. If you're a Bible student and you've studied through the Bible or read it, you might already know this many of the books of the Bible have a very linear kind of a thought, very logical kind of progression, like this plus this equals this, and this is what it does, and therefore this. First John is not that. It's, it's kind of a circular thought, an application thought is what some would kind of call it. I mean, it moves in different ways, so much so that it's a little hard to process through. In fact, if I can just be just authentic and honest with you guys, you know we've been you know teaching here for a long time, pastoring here at this church, and we have never done First John on a Sunday morning. And I got to be honest, there was a piece of me that thought I'm never going to do First John on a Sunday morning. It's like, like you know, that's just a tough book. I mean, not, not tough because it's, it's got tons of great nuggets, but just to progress through it because it doesn't move in, in, a, in a clear way, it was just like, okay, I don't know if I want to do that. Yet really began to sense, okay, I think this is where God has us to go. And yet just owning with you, just kind of some of the complications of that, but at the same moment, still wanting to have an anticipation. So tell you what, so we're trying to think about what this is, what we want to do is what we've often done is I want to share with you a video put out by the the group that's called the Bible Project. And if you're unfamiliar with this group, can I just pause and say they do an incredible job. Of taking the Bible and doing it, doing videos. They have a video for every book of the Bible uh, that usually, you know, in a five to seven, eight, nine minute, something, we'll walk you through an overview of a book of the Bible, and they do a really good job doing so. So it's pretty common that we do that, and I thought I would show those here because, again, I enjoy them. You can find them on YouTube or off of just their website, just the Bible Project. You can go and find that. I ought to quickly say this, though it's not as if I'm endorsing everything they're saying. I mean, I don't think I ever endorse anything that anybody says. I don't even endorse everything I say. I mean, sometimes like if you listen to something, you say, I can't believe he said that. It was me, I can't believe it. You know, but so, I mean, just don't t- I mean, it's not that I agree with everything the Bible Project does. In fact, even in this video, they're gonna begin with, kind of the question of who actually authored the book of First John, and there is debate. We talked about that a little bit last time, and uh, some kind of think it might be just a guy that came after the disciples. I really believe it was John the Apostle, and, and so we spent our first two weeks with uh, character studies on that, and so again, just kind of go past that, but kind of just get an overview of where we're going, and again, I hope in one sense this will help give us at least an appreciation of what's laid before us, and so here's a video for you guys to watch.
1: The letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John is actually anonymous, but 2nd and 3rd John are written by someone who is called the Elder. Now the language and style of all three of these works are identical to each other and to John's Gospel. And so most people think that all of them come from the disciple that Jesus loved. Now that could be John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles. Or it could be another John among Jesus' earliest disciples known as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, he's now in his old age and he's overseeing a network of house church communities that are likely around the city of ancient Ephesus. Now, from clues within the Gospel and from these letters, it seems that these communities were made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus and that they had recently gone through a crisis that motivated John to write these letters. He mentions that a group of people have broken off from these churches. These people no longer acknowledge Jesus as Israel's Messiah or as the Son of God. And they are stirring up hostility among those who stayed faithful to the churches. In fact, Second and Third John clearly address this conflict. Second John is a warning to a specific house church. There are people who deny Jesus. John calls them deceivers. And they're probably going to come looking for validation or support and this church community is not to offer any. Third John is actually written to a member of one of these house churches, a man named Gaius, and the elder asks him to welcome legitimate missionaries who are going to arrive soon. He has to tell him to do this because the leader of that church community, Diotrephes, is acting like a jerk, and he's rejecting anybody associated with John the Elder. And so these letters give us a window into the tension and conflict that John faced in these churches. And 1st John was written as a response to all of this as a form of damage control. The elder assures those who still believe in the Messiah Jesus that God is with them as they adhere to the truth. And so all of this helps us understand the uniqueness of 1st John which is actually not a letter at all. It reads more like a poetic sermon sent to these churches. John says that he's not communicating new information. In fact, almost all of the key ideas and words in 1st John come right out of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John. And so John's goal is to remind them and persuade these Christians to stay true to what they already say they believe. The poetic quality of John's sermon is really cool. He does not develop his ideas in a linear or logical way. Rather, he uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. So John has just a few core ideas he wants to communicate about life and truth and love. And he's going to cycle around these ideas repeatedly, each time offering a little bit different of an angle or emphasis. He uses a lot of hyperbole. He uses very stark contrasts with simple images of light and dark and love and hate and good and evil. But don't let the simplicity of 1 John fool you. This work is deeply profound. There's a clear introduction to 1 John and then a clear conclusion. And the flowing cycles of the sermon in between these two don't follow any kind of rigid literary design. But there do seem to be two larger sections. Each one is marked off by the introductory phrase this is the message. And then each is followed by a repetition of images about how God is first light and then how God is love. And all of the ideas in these two parts flow out of and cycle back into these two core ideas. So the introduction is very similar to the prologue of the Gospel of John. It has echoes of Genesis chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 8. John speaks of the word of life that was with God in the beginning. For John, the word God refers to both the Father and the Son who came to bring life into the world. And so those who saw and heard and touched the Son are called we. John's referring to himself and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so now we have a message for you, the next generation of Jesus' followers. So when the apostles share the word of life with others, these others are also brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the apostles. The word fellowship here is koinonia in Greek. It means a participation or sharing. When people hear the message about Jesus through the apostles, that message brings them into a real relationship with Jesus himself and into a real participation in God's own love and life. And so this flows right into the first main section. This is the message. God is light this is the message of the Apostles that the God revealed in Jesus is light and so if people want to participate in God's own life through Jesus they need to keep walking in the light which is a really cool image but what does it mean? It means for John to keep Jesus's commands and that's hard so when you fail Jesus's atoning death will cover for your sins and then once again you're called to get up and obey Jesus's teachings but which one of his teachings? John reminds the churches of Jesus's old slash new command given to the disciples at the Last Supper that they love one another as he loved them doing this is walking in the light. Now If God's light is now shining through Jesus, then that means the world's darkness is passing away. Which also means that God's children already in this moment have victory over the sin and evil and death that reigns in the world. And so that leads John to challenge the churches, don't love the world because it's passing away too. He's referring here specifically to pride and sexual corruption. Likely, these are problems connected to the conflict that was happening in the churches. And so, this leads John to warn the churches about these people who have left the communities and who deny Jesus as the Messiah. John calls them the anti Messiahs and deceivers, but he's confident that those who still know the truth about Jesus are, in fact, the true children of God and they are loved by the Father. And they show that they are part of God's family when they do righteousness and when they love one another unlike the deceivers who are generating anger and strife and division. And so this transitions into the second main section of the sermon. This is the message of the apostles, John says, that God is love. And so God's children should love one another and avoid hatred. Don't be like Cain from Genesis chapter 4, John says. His hatred led him to murder his brother. But for Christians, love is defined by giving up one's life as a sacrifice for the well-being of others. That's what Jesus did. And when God's children trust in that love for them, it changes them. And so John warns once again of the deceivers. This time he calls them false prophets. When they deny Jesus is the Messiah, they apparently claim to speak for God. But John says to test the spirits. If anyone claims to speak on God's behalf but doesn't focus on Jesus as the crucified Son of God, they do not speak for God, John says. God's true children will center their whole lives on the crucified and risen Jesus because that's where we see God's true heart revealed. We see on the cross that God is a being of total self giving love. And that love is what compels Jesus' followers to love others in the same way. And when people meet this God of love, it does away with fear and angst forever. Which is part of what John means by having victory over the world. When you realize that God so loves you, that he is crazy about you despite your deepest flaws and failures. That love becomes the thing that grounds your entire life. This love is what comes through trusting in the crucified Jesus. It comes through trusting God's testimony about Jesus given by the Spirit. And it is trusting in the message from the apostles about Jesus and when God's love gets a hold of you it opens up eternal life it's a life permeated with God's own presence and life and love and it begins now carrying on into eternity and so this leads John to the climactic conclusion of his sermon he says we know the Son of God has come and so we can know the one who is true and we are in the one who is true in his son Jesus the Messiah this is the true God And eternal life. Now if your head's kind of spinning after hearing that sentence and you're wondering wait who is the one who is true? Who is the one who gives true life? Is it Jesus or is it God? And John's answer is of course yes. John doesn't know any God apart from Jesus and when he and the other apostles encountered Jesus they discovered the God who loves us so deeply that he has chosen not to exist without us despite our failures and this God is so surprising so unexpected that John's final words call us to keep away from idols that is to resist any temptation to remake the surprising God in our own image to know Jesus is to know the God of creation. Life-giving, others centered love. This, John says, is the one true God. And that's what the letters of John are all about.
0: Okay, you guys got it, right? So now we can just give you a test on it and you know you kind of all figure it out and, and kind of work through it. Well, hopefully, you know, in one sense, you at least have an understanding of where we're going. I mean, I just want to tell you, it's going to be an amazing book. It's a book that really does deal with this genuine life this Christian life that God has for us, and and will invite us to to knowing the reality of that and how pervasive it is, how it brings us into incredible love, and how it brings us into joy that's amazing. He's going to talk to us about how to do that, and talk about our sin, and how we both kind of appropriate forgiveness, but also overcome, and he's going to deal with how we do that, but also recognizing both the weird fallen world that we live in, but also false doctrine and false teaching that would so pull us off base and just kind of guiding us into this place of just walking with him in this life, in this love. And I just want to tell you, I find that to be something that we need. I don't think there's probably anybody, if you could be altogether clear, would look at that and think, well, I don't need to think I need any of that. You know, I, I hope that's not true. I hope you're here saying, well, I would like to know more. Yeah, that does sound even very much appropriate in the midst of it. And so for that, that's what we want to talk about. That's some of what's in the midst of this for us to see. And again, it's going to be a place that will draw us to the life that God has for us, to the love of God, both being received and flowing to God's truth in the midst of this. And it's going to be profound, but I want to just pause again and say, it's going to be a little bit challenging because again, it doesn't flow in a linear or logic or piece upon piece, which is kind of the way I think. I mean, for you guys who are, you know, this is your church, you know, I mean, I think in outlines. I mean, I do like outline on the screen or bullet points. It's like, hey, that's how it works. This is going to be very different. I mean sometimes it's going to feel like we talk about a truth and you're going to be like, "Okay, we talked about it." And then we go away from it a little while. Then a couple weeks later we come back to you, and you're like, "Didn't we already talk about this?" It's like we did, but now we're talking about it again but from a little bit different angle. And then will be like, "Okay, well, we talked about it." Then it'll be again. It'll be like, hey. and then sometimes you'll be like, "Okay, we're working." And then, "Wait, we just switched gears." I mean, we didn't even finish that thought, you know? We got we have more things to think through. And he's like, "He's going to come back to it." And so, I just want you to know that's going to be a little bit challenging, but I also believe that God did it on purpose. That this isn't an accident that he wrote the book this way in a way that's going to just draw us to find ourselves orbiting around this in a way that will be challenging to kind of put it all together but at the same moment hopefully just building in a way that although it's not you know piece upon piece logic it's truth coming together in our lives that will produce in us good things and I just want to tell you, I think it's going to be that way. And if you'll join us in this study and go verse by verse through the book of 1 John, I do believe that God is going to do some good things. And so kind of just as we gaze at that this morning, I wanted to put that before you. So you have some expectation of why or where are we going? What's going to happen in the midst of this? How is that going to work? And, and where do we, what, what should we expect in that? Well, now you, at least you have at least some sense of an expectation, So I've already kind of talked to you a little bit about just why we're here. So again, you know, for me, as we finished our last study and I found myself just, okay, God, what's next? Where do you, where do you want us to go next? Really began to sense that he was leading us to 1 John. And I've already been honest with you. There was a little bit of reluctance on my part, looking like dragging me forward. Like, no, not that. No, 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 no. That's going to be tough. Like, that's going to be hard to put it together. But I mean, it just became more and more clear. I think this is the book that God has for us to kind of work through now, so I'm excited just believing he's led us to that. But something was also happening at the same moment. You know, as I found myself being led to First John, I found myself kind of drawn into a place of just thinking through things that God has done with this book, and very specifically with Calvary Chapel. That in one sense, as is you, is you think about what is a Calvary Chapel, and maybe you know, maybe you don't know, we are a Calvary Chapel, Calvary Roswell. There are, across our world, about 1,700 Calvary chapels. It's a movement, although every church is individual, and every church is you know, kind of its own deal in, in the midst of that, but there's a movement that works through that is really kind of what Calvary Chapel is, in some sense, is understanding, okay, what is that thing? What is, this, what makes Calvary, what is Calvary Chapel? How did that work? And Again, some of you know a little bit of the history. Early in the 1960s, a man named Chuck Smith, a pastor who had already been pastoring for over a decade, uh, really began to find his life altered. And and even just his approach to the Bible altered. That in one sense, he had been, you know, one who had been teaching it the way he was taught, uh, which were very topical messages, very, you know, hey, just this is what we do. And God altered that in a way that really laid a foundation uh, that is true for Calvary chapels ever since. And so what I thought I would do is I just wanted to share with you that story a little bit. I wanna show you a clip uh, that Chuck Smith was speaking, and and he was speaking, this is a preach the word conference given a number of years back, uh, where he was given just the opportunity to to speak, and so there's a bunch of pastors speaking. Uh, It really, it was for pastors and Bible teachers to call them to be, hey, state of the word, like teach the word, and so he's speaking in the midst of that, and he's gonna tell the story of how God, altered his life and what First John was in that, and so I want to show you that, and then we'll kind of stop the message right in the middle so you can go back and get the whole thing ever if you want online, uh, but it's going to take a minute to get there. I mean, I could have just kind of fast-forwarded uh, in the message to that, but it kind of felt like it needed to build that way, so give it just a couple moments and just kind of get a chance to, to hear from him, but then hear a little bit of the story that laid the groundwork for who we are and what Calvary Chapel is. So here's uh, Pastor Chuck Smith so sharing.
2: Thank you. Thank you. You don't know what a miracle it is that I'm here today. After listening to the first two speakers this morning, I was ready to run. (laughs) Having these guys hit those home runs and then realizing I'll get up and probably strike out, you know. I must confess, when they first gave me the topic of expositional foundations, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how they wanted me to go with it, so uh, I decided that I wouldn't pay any attention to the (laughs) subject that they gave me. But the importance of biblical exposition. I know this is preach the word, and that's important. I think that the preaching, however, is in the New Testament, usually confined to proclaiming the gospel to sinners. But once a person has accepted the Lord, I think that they really need to be taught. And so, God sort of led me into a teaching kind of a ministry. And we're always just saying, teach the Word of God simply. But the, the, James, when he was speaking, I, I, I was just admiring him. How that he could move around and, uh, you know, and just was so dynamic. I can remember when I first started in the ministry, I was pastoring a little church in Tucson, and uh, my dear wife Kay sought to help me. She said, honey, you're just not dynamic enough. You just stand behind the pulpit. Now, watch Billy Graham. He doesn't just stand behind the pulpit. He moves around, and of course, those days they didn't have the little you know, the little mics and so forth, like that. So he would take the big stand and all, and he would go over to the side of the platform, and he'd lift his hand, and, and very dynamic. And so uh, she said, honey, you've got to be more dynamic. I'll never forget the Sunday I decided to be dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it so clearly. I was getting to the major point of my message. I grabbed the microphone and I went over to the side of the platform. I lifted my hand, a la Billy Graham, was going to drive this point home, and my mind went totally blank. Now I I experienced that more often today than I did then. Uh, they call it senior moments, I think. I remember uh, how the two fellows had met together, old fellows, and they hadn't seen any each other for years. They'd been in high school, played football together, and uh, they were talking about the good old high school days and how you know exciting and all it was and um, the the teams that they were playing against. And finally, the one fellow said, you know, we had some great experiences and wonderful memories, uh, but I can't remember your name. (laughs) What is your name now? He said, you have to know this very moment. (laughs) I heard of this uh, wonderful uh, psychologist that uh, helped senior citizens in their memories. And uh, so these two fellows were talking about, you know, the, how that as you become a senior, you begin to forget things. You know, I noticed how he walked, he, I mean, the things that he, I was amazed. I mean, I just really was impressed with him. Uh, so dynamic and all and, Um The one fellow said, well, you know, he said, I've been going to the psychologist and he has helped me tremendously. I used to have those senior moments, I'd forget things, but now that I've been to him, no more problems. I I really, uh, you know, just got it nailed now. And the fellow said, well, that's interesting. Uh, What is your doctor's name? And, and how did he do it? He said, well, he taught me association. You start associating and, and you remember by association. He said, well, that, that is amazing. What, what's your doctor's name? He said, well, um, let's see. Um, it has a stem, thorns on it, and a beautiful blossom. Smells great. And the guy says, rose? Yes, Rose, honey, what's the name of that doctor I've been going to? (laughs) You laugh, you'll get there. (laughs) Years ago when I was in the early ministry, early years of my ministry, My preaching was all topical preaching. I had topics for about two years. So after being in a church for two years, I would ask for a transfer. (laughs) And I would go to another church and preach my two years of topics. And that went fine until I arrived in Huntington Beach. Greatest surf on the coast. Little beach town, 6,300 people in Huntington Beach when I first arrived. All of the oil wells provided a tremendous tax base for the city. So our taxes were the least in California Because the oil wells took care of it. We had the finest schools in all of the state. Uh, Swimming pools in the grammar school, enclosed swimming pools. I loved Huntington Beach. (laughs) Loved the surf. But my two years was running out. I don't want to move. You know, I'd like to say that I got a revelation and the Lord spoke to my heart and said, Chuck, start teaching, you know. It wasn't that way. It was just, I've got to do something to stay here. (laughs) So I was reading the book, The Apostle John by Griffith Thomas. I think it was chapter seven, where he gave outline studies of 1 John. I began to read these outline studies. They were good. As I began to study them, I realized I could make a sermon out of each of these 42 outlines that he has. I could stay in Huntington Beach for another year. (laughs) All I have to do is change from topical preaching to just expounding teaching the Word of God. So I announced to the people, next Sunday we're going to do something different. We're going to start a study of 1 John. Now, the first outline that he has is the purpose of the book. And he gives you the three reasons that John said he wrote the book. So I told the people, I want you to read 1 John this week. And I want you to find the three reasons why he wrote it. Now, I had never, ever, you know, I you said, read your Bible, read your Bible. That's, you know, pretty broad, isn't it? Of course, that was my problem of finding a text. You go through and trying to go through the whole Bible to find a text. I mean, you spend half your week trying to find your text for Sunday. But uh, I gave them an assignment. First time ever just giving an assignment. I want you to read this book and I want you to find the three reasons why John wrote it about the middle of the week people started calling me they said Chuck are you sure there are three reasons I have found two I said keep reading I've read it through ten times I can only find two keep reading I said, Sunday morning I'll be at the door as you come in and I want you to give me the three reasons why John wrote his first epistle. Of course John, very obvious, he said that he was writing it that your joy might be full. That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you that your joy might be full. And in chapter two, he talks about these things, have we written unto you, that you sin not. Chapter five, um, again, he talks about having written to them that they might know that they have eternal life. So the purpose of the book. And then I gave them assignments every for every Sunday of finding things within, 1 John, there are several things that people say. If a man says, I know God. And and there are some six things that people say, and, and he gives to you these six things that people say that are not always so. So I want you to find those six things. And then there are proofs to our Christian life. By this we know. And I want you to find the seven things that we know and why we know them. And then we started through 1 John, took a whole year. The amazing thing was that there were more people came to Christ that year than in any year of my ministry. More people were baptized and the church doubled in the year just teaching through 1st John. Well, I was excited. I still didn't want to leave Huntington Beach. <laughs> and I had developed a new style of ministry, not topical, but just expositional studying of the Word. So, had a professor in Bible college that said the book of Romans will revolutionize any church. I thought, well, I'd like to see a revolution. (laughs) I'll teach the book of Romans. So I announced to the people, we're going to go now to the book of Romans. I got all of the commentaries I could find on Romans and started to develop outline studies through the book of Romans. took two years going through the book of Romans and it revolutionized me. I discovered the grace of God. I had grown up in sort of a legalistic kind of a background in the church that I was in, and I discovered the grace of God, and it was just a glorious discovery, personal discovery. My life was transformed in really understanding God's grace. Hallie's Bible Pocket Handbook. I used to uh, make a practice of giving one out to everyone who accepted the Lord, that they could read it along with their Bible because it was so chock full of just good information in a condensed form. And I would always give, I would go to my library because it made an impression, take my book and hand it to them, and then I'd go get me a new one. (laughs) Because they were always revising it, you know. (laughs) And so I bought a new Halley's Bible pocket handbook for my librarian. I noticed on the flyleaf it said the most important Page in this book, I think it was 848. Well, I had gotten so much out of Halley's Bible handbook, which now it's called Bible Handbook. It was called Bible Pocket then. I had gotten so much out of it, I thought, what does he consider the most important page? And I turned to it and he said, "Every church should have a system of taking the whole congregation through the whole Bible. And ideally the Sunday morning message would come out of the passages that the people read the previous week. And he gave a really how to, you know, he gave a, a, a pattern for going through Old and New Testament. But I thought, well, why not just go straight through the Bible? Start with Genesis and go straight through, and I can spend the rest of my life in Huntington Beach. <laughs> But unfortunately, my church began to prosper and grow so much that the denomination I was in noticed and they uh, sort of insisted that I take one of their largest churches, which was floundering because of a um, problem that the pastor had with morals. And so I left Huntington Beach reluctantly, but I had developed a pattern of expositional teaching. Just... Simply teaching the word of God, simply, and I've followed that pattern through the years in the ministry, over sixty years now. Well, but the pattern didn't start till I was seventeen years in the ministry. So, uh, but since that time, following that pattern of just simply teaching the word of God, simply.
0: Simply teaching the Word of God simply, that really did begin to define both who Chuck Smith was and even what Calvary Chapel would become, and it's just a powerful reality and yet I draw your attention to it this morning because there is a sense of just as we get ready to journey into first John that I find myself thinking about that, just thinking about all that has gone before, and so again, you probably caught some of that in the midst of it, but let me just kind of put a couple pieces together, maybe add a little bit more there's much much more. Uh, Chuck shares the story in greater details in other places but Chuck Smith, you know, born in 1927, died about eight years ago this month, and yet his impact was incredible. Uh, He would spend 17 years, the beginning of his ministries, in the four-square denomination. He spoke about that a little bit, and it was in the midst of that where he kind of discovered this idea of teaching through the Bible, and it's a fun story because it really did change him. I mean, in many ways, he began to do very, very well as far as the church was growing. Even though he wasn't doing any of the kind of stuff that the church was doing, it would eventually drive him out of the denomination eventually just getting crossways with the leaders because he was doing his thing and wouldn't kind of go with their uh, programs and things they were doing. And so they end up kicking him out of the denomination after 17 years, but he discovered how to do that. And so he was looking for a church and there's this little church uh, there in Costa Mesa, California that Needed a church. It had already existed, Calvary Chapel. There were 25 people there. Uh, he went there, kind of candidate.ed They they called him to be their pastor, and he just said, "Okay, I'm going to make these 25 people, you know, the best loved and best taught sheep I can." And he had taken all that he had learned, uh, you know, kind of just okay teaching the Bible, the Word of God, simply, and that became the foundation of, of what would happen. But then God began to move. Uh, many of you guys are aware of it, but. The 1960s were incredibly hard years for our, our nation, hard years for our world, but God interrupted it. I mean, he interrupted it with this incredible movement, a revival that swept across the nation around the world. The Jesus movement in many ways called Calvary Chapel was very much a part of it. It was bigger than Calvary Chapel, so it wasn't just that, but Chuck Smith would become a big part of it. His church would explode to the thousands, to the tens of thousands, to eventually hundreds of thousands across California, just people coming to Christ all across the nation, incredibly used uh, in, in many ways, you know, just in all of those ways. And yet one of the things that would define it would again be this idea that out of those 1,700 churches that began to move, that there would be things that would define it. And maybe this one thing is the major definition. I mean, the thing that should be true, and I think it is true. If you travel across our nation and you visit another Calvary chapel, their styles are a little different because every, you know, kind of circles around the personality of the pastor a little bit or things. But there's one thing that defines us we teach the Bible. We just simply teach the Bible, like verse by verse, line upon line, thought upon thought. That is what we do, and it really defined who we were. I think I could make a case that that's a good case for any church. But I certainly want to tell you it's true of Calvary Chapel, and it's certainly true of us. And so I found myself just, you know, in that sense, in this kind of place of thinking that God was drawing us into First John and, and just thinking through that story because I love just Chuck's honesty. I love that he kind of talked about how God kind of hoodwinked him almost into the whole thing, but he would share in other parts of the story how it changed him. He, he would say, you know, what he discovered was the Bible works. You know, God says he'd sent his word to accomplish the purposes for which he'd caused him to see, and, and he would testify even after that first year in First John. He said, you know, interestingly enough, his people became more joyful, more victorious, more confident, more just know the very things that, that first John is about, he began to see taking place in the life of his people in ways that he'd never done before. And he discovered that the Bible is is just powerful. And so I love that kind of sense. I love that whole reality. And again, I just want to say it's what we need. So I've showed you a couple videos. I'm gonna show you one more. It's a short one, but let me just say this. If you're familiar with things I've kind of talked about, you're familiar with uh, maybe the Jesus movement, there's a ton of documentaries. There's a bunch of uh, videos are out, but if you wanna kind of ever find, just read re- some or, or watch some movies or DVDs that would have a couple, probably two I would recommend. One of them is called Venture in Faith, and I think we might have, unless somebody already got it from first service, we have a couple of those DVDs uh, in our uh, library in the overflow room. The other one is What God Is. Roth. I actually like it a little bit better. Uh, Today we don't have any copies of that, but they're on the way. I kind of realized like we don't have copies of that. It's on order, so it should be here in a couple days. And I just want to tell you, if you're interested in kind of just seeing and just being reminded of what God has done, I think that would be a great thing. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to show you the trailer. Um, from the movie, What God Has Wrought, that'll just give you a, a sense, a kind of almost a feel of what God did. I mean, just this awakening that really did just catch our nation and our world in such an, a vital place. And again, to see a little bit of our history that has brought us to where we are. So again, here's this quick trailer that'll help you just kind of see that and, and what it was about.
2: What a friend we beauty, the glory of the whole experience as the uh, beach is just lined with thousands of people singing the choruses and praising the Lord, then walking out into the water and the burying of the past, and then when they realize that all of the past is gone, that it's all been buried, that God has absolutely nothing against them. The slate is clean. It's a brand new life now with Jesus. Not only that, Even as the Spirit descended upon Jesus after his baptism, their hearts are open and they just receive the power of God's Spirit to live that new life that the Lord wants them to live. And it's indescribable.
0: (laughs) Keeper of the stars
2: Lord of time and space Kay really had this burden uh, ahead of anyone else Or before anyone else that I heard of and, and Chuck opened up his heart And the rest is history I mean, it literally changed American history Here
0: is a man and a woman that for 17 years, nothing has happened to them They've had it tough And then all of a sudden, at God's divine time God begins to use Chuck and Kay And it becomes a world movement
2: the Lord just chose for this time to pour out His Spirit upon this troubled youth. And uh, many, many thousands came to know Christ, during which was called the Jesus Movement by Life Magazine, I think. And
0: uh, it was true. It was, it, Jesus was moving. God was doing something special in the Jesus Movement. And the Jesus Movement was bigger than Calvary Chapel, obviously. But God had such a unique role for Pastor Chuck and Calvary Chapel to play in that. What Pastor Chuck did was he brought these lives that were being changed in this outpouring of God that is often called the Jesus movement. And he really connected them to church. God has used him in an unparalleled way because he's stuck to the word and he's taught the word. I sometimes think if you squeeze Chuck, the word of God would squirt out.
1: He's a man who puts God first and he is a, a role model. If a, if a young pastor's come along, who, who do you want to shape your ministry after? Shape it after Chuck Smith, you won't go wrong.
2: One day, as I was sitting in the little church on Sunflower in Greenville, this group of hippies or guys came in, and uh, they said, we're musicians, and the Lord has given us, we all accepted the Lord here, you know, last week, and the Lord's giving us some Christian music, and we'd like to share it here if we could. And I was a little skeptical, but I said, well, you know, can you give me a demonstration? They said, yeah. And so they went out and got their uh, guitars and all out of their band and, uh, and the, you know, the, their instruments, and they came on the bass and all, and, and they started singing uh, this song. And, and as they started singing, it was so moving, so touching. I started weeping. And so I said, it's Monday. And I said, we have a Monday night study with the kids. Can you come tonight? And they said, well, one of our lead guitarists uh, is doing weekends in jail, but he gets out at noon. And so we can probably make it. He was doing a marijuana rap on weekends. And so they came that Monday night, and it was just electrifying. Long hair, short hair some coats and ties people finally coming around looking past the hair straight into the eyes people finally coming around it was the story of what was happening uh, during this great uh, movement among the young people
0: Story of just what god has done in an amazing way and so again i just pause this morning in one sense just bring that to your attention because in one sense that's our history that's the history that brought us to that. And I find myself thinking, you know, how much I long for what God would do even now. You know, I don't know where our nation is. I don't know where we are. Sometimes I feel like, you know, that we're so close to Jesus coming back that it feels like we could, like at any moment, it just feels like things are falling in place for Jesus to come back. But I want to tell you, the 60s felt that way. I've read enough to know just the, the chaos, the racism, the, the tensions that, that shook our world and the Jesus movement was a revival that changed our nation. And I don't know about you, but you know if God wants to do it again, I'm in. You know If he wants to come back, I'm great, but you know what, if he wants to do it again, but that's really the only thing that would save our nation where it is right now, is another awakening, another pouring out, and in one sense, it's fun just to see all of that, but again, to kind of take from that, that there's a great need for us to hold fast to some of those things find myself thinking about it this way. In the book of Judges, some of you are reading with us. We read through the Bible together as a church, and so you're in the middle of the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 2, there's this interesting description of the kind of transition that was happening in in the nation at that point in time. And it just says, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel things were changing. Joshua had been there. Just the book of Joshua had been there. They'd taken the nation of Israel into the promised land. I mean, God was moving in power. It was in a mighty season. And it tells us at the beginning of the book of Judges that during the days of Joshua and all the elders who outlived Joshua, the people stayed faithful to God. They they didn't ever turn from him. But he says, after that, another generation arose and they didn't know. They didn't know They didn't know God, they didn't know what he had done, and they began to turn away to other things. They began to turn away to other gods, and it becomes this tragic story. Again, if you're with us in the book of Judges, if you don't already know, it's like the worst book in the Bible. I mean, it is so incredibly sad. It's just like, it's like it, you know, it starts bad and gets worse and worse and worse and worse, because it is this picture of everybody doing what's right in their own eyes just giving up on God and turning away from him. And and that's a tragic story. But if I can say it in the most simple way, maybe one of the things that I found myself thinking of is we are journeying into the book of 1 John as a church is I don't want that to be our story. I don't want us to be a people that, you know, God's work is a past tense thing. That we're to be a people that know this. He says there's a generation that didn't know it. They didn't know God. They didn't know the work that he has done. And there's a sense that you and I are called to that. In fact, I like in the book of Jeremiah, it says it this way. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. This is God speaking. He says, okay, here's the thing. Okay, you're trying to live life. And if you're standing in the path of life, the life that you're trying to figure out what God has for you, he says, look back. Where were the old paths that brought people to where they are? What were the things that were so key that brought us to these places? Look at those things. What's the good things that were there? He says, if you'll do those good things, you'll find rest for your soul. I find myself thinking about it, and I just want to say, you know, one of the good things for us, obviously, again, is this reality that, you know, we've been called to be a people that teach the word of God simply. And there's a sense that that is who we are. And there's a sense of saying, okay, these are things that define us. And just longing for what had begun in the midst of that to become ours. Now, quick FYI, there's always a danger, actually, with looking at the past. Um, Sometimes we can find ourselves wanting to relive it to wanting to go back, and I find myself thinking what Jesus said, when he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins, that we can't recreate the the old environments, there is no sense that, you know, what I'm talking to you about this morning is like, hey, we have to do the Jesus movement all over again, we got to go back, and you guys got to get long hair, and we're going to start doing hippie stuff, and (laughs) There's just, that's, that was what God did then. I mean, there's not a sense that we're saying, okay, we need to package it again the way it was packaged then. But there is a sense that we want to say, okay, this is what God has done. This is what he's been a part of. And there is a sense that we long for it. And so I just draw your attention one more time to this verse there in the book of Judges where it says, "You know, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done. Kind of pay attention to that word no just for a moment because it really is what we need to think about just for a moment and then we'll wind down here. The word no, yada, is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It is more than just factual knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. It's the idea that you don't just know about something, but you know it. You don't just know it as if, you know, you read about it in a book, but you know it personally. It's not like you just read a book about somebody. It's like, you know, that person. And so he says, here's the thing. There's a group of people that came and it's not that they forgot all the facts. They probably didn't. They probably remembered, you know, many of the things that had happened in the days of Joshua. But here's the thing. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't know him personally, experientially. They they, they got into a place where it was all going through the motions, where it was all this external thing. They didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know what he had done. They didn't know that, not that they just had forgotten the facts, but it wasn't something that was real for them. It wasn't something that was, yeah. See, what the past is to do is to inspire us, to say, hey, God has done it before, let's do it again. (laughs) I mean, I want to be a part of what God is doing in this generation. I want to be a part of how he's seeking to to change the world and the life that's given there. And so sometimes knowing that past, being the one that says, okay, I know what God has done, doesn't move us to want to recreate or repackage the past, but to say, I want that. And so I found myself just in that sense, as we're beginning the book of 1 John saying, Boy, that's what I long for for us. In fact, it's so much what First John is going to be about. We'll dive into it more next week as it even begins in the first few verses in kind of that introductory section, just calling us into this authenticity, this reality of place where he would say to us, and I'm saying to you now, this is what you need. You need to be a person that doesn't just know about it. You need to know him. And maybe that's maybe the main thing that I want to say this morning out of all that is I don't know where this lands with you. It's kind of an odd way of doing this morning. I just admit that again and kind of a weird way of approaching even kind of an overview of First John. But at the same moment, I hope it draws you, draws you to say, I want to be a part of that. I want, to, I want to be a part of a people that know God. I mean, really know him. And I want to be a part of what he's doing. That's the invitation I give you both for this morning, and if God gives us time to journey in First John, I invite you to that as well. So that's where we're going to end. So I would tell you to close your Bibles, but I never told you to open them, so I guess I don't even have to do that, you know, kind of deal, but I hope somehow God has spoken to you in the midst of it. I know it was a different Sunday. I know that in one sense, just the way we approached it, but I hope in one sense through this, God has met you met you in a way that encourages you and draws you after the things he has. And so let's take a moment and pray for that. Just a quiet moment. And just whatever is kind of standing out to you of all that was said, maybe in the midst of one of the videos or something I said, or maybe even outside of that, would you take a moment just to talk to God about that? Just ask him to make real in your life what he has spoken to you. You take a moment and quietly pray. I'll do the same. and we will come back and close and worship in just a moment. God, as we take a little bit of an overview of just even the expectation of this study in 1 John, I'm excited. I'm excited because I believe your word is powerful, that you have said you have not sent it in a way that it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purposes for which you have sent it. God, do that. Cause just the time that we get to spend as much or as little as you give us in that space in 1 John, and Lord, just cause it to meet us. But God, I pray that it'd meet us in reality. I find myself in that place of both thinking of the book of 1 John, but even the story of the beginning of Calvary Chapel and really the, some of the foundations that laid this work that you've been doing. And Lord, I, I'm I'm grateful for that. And I pray that you would cause us to, to look back and see the good way that's there. And we could just, we, we hold fast to that that we hold fast to what you've been doing, that good course that you've laid out, and then, Lord, just bring us into all that you're doing. We've seen what you've done. We see this awakening that just really did change our nation. And, Lord, I don't know if we have time before the rapture. I don't know how much more space you're going to give us. But if you want to pour out an awakening and again, a revival, it would be the only thing that would seem to be able to do a work in our nation at this point. And I would, be, I would welcome that with joy. But even if that's not where we are going, even if instead we're heading past to the end, I know for me, I wanna approach that with an awakened heart. I wanna be a part of that, just knowing you and your work, and I pray that for me, and I pray that for us, that you would draw us to you. God, draw each person here, those who who are yours, draw them to you. Lord, in the midst of this, there might be someone who's gathered here and they're not even your child, and, and kind of a weird Sunday morning in that sense for that kind of impact, but Lord, you're God. And so I pray even for those who don't know you, that today they would be reminded, they'd see it, they'd understand that there's a real God who's really at work, and you would draw them to have a real knowing of you, that they wouldn't just know about you, but they would know you. I cry out for that even right now, and I thank you that that's what you're seeking to do. We honor you right now for that, and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God meet you in that. May He draw you. And again, if that's you, that even you just don't know the Lord and God would draw you to Him, we would love to be.